0: the reason Powell is raising rates is because he's trying to fight inflation. Mm -hmm. And the more he raises rates, the more economic turmoil that seems to be causing. Namely, and we're gonna get to this in a little bit, in in the uh, realm of bank failures, okay? So that's starting to happen. Another bank failed this week, which we'll talk about in a minute. Bankless Nation, it is the first Friday of May. It's Friday morning, hope you brought your coffee. David, what time is it?
1: Uh, Ryan, it's the uh, Bankless Friday weekly rollup where we cover the entire weekly news in crypto, which is always an ambitious endeavor. Yet we persevere,
0: nonetheless, into the frontier. How are you doing this week, David? Dan? I, I, I'm doing well. I don't yeah. know if the banks can say the same though, because mm-hmm. we got more bank failures mm-hmm. on the menu. Season right? two, season two that's two a of bank big failures. topic, big topic of conversation. We're also going to talk about Jerome Powell and the Fed raising interest rates. How high can they go? That's the question <laughs> we got to ask. David, what else are we covering today?
1: Uh, Balaji waves the right white flag on his bet a little bit early. He capitulates as Bitcoin's not going to go to $1 million in the next six weeks. I Yeah, think by June it,
0: 17th. June 17th was predicted. when it was
1: over. Okay, well, it is May 4th. So he, he's waving the white flag, donated, <laughs> donated $1.5 million. Uh, and so we're going to cover that. And then also, uh, there are some other mainnets just dropped. So Eigenlayer mainnet, the SUI mainnet, the Axelar has an announcement, and uh, Lens has uh, a, a layer 3 that we talked about last week. We got some stats. And then speaking of mainnets, not really mainnet, but Coinbase International, New Exchange, just got announced. So a bunch of stuff to run through in this Friday Weekly up
0: yeah totally always jam-packed for you guys of course if you like this episode if you like what we're doing over here at bankless make sure you like and subscribe that's how we pop up on the charts on spotify on apple Podcasts, on youtube you know how to it do it. It is really like, important. Subscribe. It's, it's, it's important very important to do. Yeah. yeah, especially in the bear market. All oh, right. Yeah. Can, you, can you spare a like, Count, guys? Counts, can you... counts for. <laughs> Please spare a like. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> One thing before we get into the markets today, David, we got to talk about our friends and sponsors over at. Let's get to the markets today. All right. Mm-hmm. How are we looking on a Bitcoin on the week? Are we up? Are we down? Are we sideways? It. We are sideways. Sideways week. Uh, literally
1: nothing to report. Twenty eight thousand dollars and nine hundred.
0: You tell me 20. we could have just skipped this entire week. It yeah. didn't even matter.
1: Yeah, 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 that's about right. Yeah, not even one okay. percent move on either Bitcoin or Ether or the it's ratio. the same. Both Ether's just flat, flat. Eighteen hundred and eighty-eight dollars. The most interesting thing about Ether right now is that there are three eighths in the price.
0: Man, we could have just uh, saved the last roll-up recording clip and just pl- replayed yeah. it, huh? Same yeah. price. Uh-huh. Nothing I mean, changed. We got some
1: volatility. We uh, went down to eight hundred. We almost got back above two thousand, but. Uh, ETH unchanged. Bitcoin
0: ratio also it's flat. Also this, is, this is weirdly Shocker. flat.
1: Yeah. But yeah. also, Bankless Station, I'll remind you please po- pull up your tracker apps, your price trackers, and make sure that the prices have not moved in the
0: last 24 hours. And if you want some of the best charts in the biz, you got to go check out uh, Kraken Pro over here, pro.kraken.com. Yeah. Professional interface. So all of my charts look uh, very professional mm-hmm. these days, David. It wasn't like that before, and I'm okay. learning how to chart a little slowly. Yeah, you are. Slowly, but sure. It's taking some time. But uh, well, Let's talk about the big news today, David, which is uh, the Fed raising rates. The big news this week, at least. So the Fed just raised rates, interest rates, by 0.25 percent, or as you like to call it, 25 basis points. I love looking right? that. <laughs> I know you always are speaking I always in terms call of that. basis points. <laughs> So here's the uh, the press release. If you want to read something, uh, you know, kind of boring, and what the, uh, what the what the notes are about this, but five point two five percent between five and five point two five percent range. That's a sixteen year all time high. Hmm. We haven't been higher in interest rate um, in sixteen years. It Was sixteen years ago? When was that, David? It was before two thousand and eight, before the you know financial mm. crash. Mm. um Mm -hmm. yeah we're talking like mid 2000s what were you doing in the mid 2000s last Uh, time the the rates were this high were you buying a house no (laughs) i was not under strain did you know that rates existed not at at all
1: no i just understood that my parents were stressed
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh wait no this was
1: pre this was pre housing crisis never mind yeah yeah no,
0: everything was fine but it was about to get things were about about to get get, bad yeah right 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 huh Okay. Oh, it so, does make well, sense
1: that high interest rates created the housing bubble to pop. That makes sense.
0: Do you think uh, kids in middle school right now are talking about inflation or interest rates uh, at all? Or are they just still just kids way in more school? than I
1: was when I was in middle school?
0: <laughs> <can tell> you. <laughs> the kids are getting smarter. Every generation, that's what's happening. I think. Um, but you know what? This this is kind of the uh, the decision point here, right? Because Jerome Powell has a question. Uh, they want the reason Powell is raising rates is because he's trying to fight inflation. And the more he raises rates, the more economic turmoil that seems to be causing. Namely, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, in in the uh, realm of bank failures. Okay, so that's starting to happen. Another bank failed this week, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I kind of feel like Powell is choosing maybe the worst of both worlds. Like, so we're going to end up with high inflation anyway, and also bank failures? That's my critique as to what's going on. On the other hand, like, I don't know, maybe the guy's actually not in control of anything. It just seems like what happens, David, if we tighten so much that we cause a cascade of two thousand eight like economic effects right we We just had our third major bank failure this week, and we're still raising rates. It seems like a bad time to be raising rates, but I'm not a actually, central banker <laughs>
1: i want to yeah, I want to present the actually the counter argument to that point. Uh, go for it so. We got to we got to raise rates because inflation's still up, right? Core inflation has not gone down. Uh, the the more volatile, more expressive in, in inflation has come down, but core inflation, things like services services and goods, have gone up, right? That's the hard part. So that's why we got to keep on raising interest rates. And then when the bank failures uh, occur, that's a sign. That's a sign of raising interest rates. Of course, uh, economics and finance are just harder. And I think that what the Fed is able to do with bailing out these individual banks as they fail is like the Fed is raising interest more interest rates, surgical. and then they are catching the distressed banks on the way down, so it's not a like an impact. They're just cradling the bank failure into <laughs> the ground. <laughs> cradling the bank failure. And then they're, letting, the and then they're catching the next one. And oh, so they wow. are actually able to continue to increase rates because they are surgically catching the catastrophes That they are causing which allows them to continue to raise rates because they're not they're they're like oh there's contagion go gotta go catch it and it's working so far so far and maybe
0: but also has a whole bunch of unintended consequences as well that we'll get to and i worry about one of which is like bank consolidation into too big to fail banks so that the banking sector becomes
1: nationalized doesn't sound like it's unintended
0: that's kind of what's happening, right? Yeah. But I do think the 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 picture you just painted is what the central bankers and Powell would like to have happen, right. Right? I just worry, I think we're going to get there's a very real possibility, David, at this point, we get the worst of both worlds in yeah. that. We're not able to cradle the banks on their way right. down, but we just get cascading bank failures and also high massive high right. inflation, right? So just like, what was the point? We I don't get, know. That's the risk that we're running. Inflation, but economic deflation. Oh, that sounds awful. We'll have to see what happens. I, I, uh, is we that do know this. That yes. is what stagflation is. That is what stagflation um, is. From the policy statement this week, anyway, the language saying that the the Fed this has been you know, previous uh, Fed language that it anticipates further rate increases would be needed that wasn't in here, right? So this does seem like this is the last the top rate of rise, rate. right? And it was only twenty five basis points, as right. you like to say. So I yeah, guess but not we that big. we were
1: hoping for the pivot. The pivot where we are no yes. longer increasing interest rates and now we're just going to hold it is not exactly the pivot that we were looking for as an industry that has very high risk crypto assets <laughs> on this <risk> curve. <laughs> I mean, we were hoping for a reversal.
0: Look, ultimately though, David, I on I want crypto to deserve it. I want our like industry to deserve it and not just be kind of a money printer hedge completely. Like I want us to provide uh, pure utility. I want. Um, the U S economy to be in an okay shape, uh, And I don't want things to kind of cascade downward and, you know, just the casino markets to rain. So I'm not sure what the best uh, position is here, but Jim Bianco here has a different take. His take is the Fed knew the risks already of bank failures. Powell knew the risks and he's being a careless being here. He's being reckless here. Hmm. He puts this in a tweet thread. On February 14th, the Fed board was given a presentation that went through the risks to the banking system due to unrealized losses because of the rapidly rising interest rates. It gave this example of a bank sitting on unrealized losses and particularly vulnerable. This was February 14th, mind you, before the bank failures. Um, After hearing this presentation, Powell went ahead with very hawkish testimony. That was on March 7th and 8th. The probability of a 50 basis point hike on March 22 soared based on Powell's words. And less than 48 hours later, Silicon Valley Bank failed and the Fed backed off to a uh, 25 basis point hike. The point Bianco's making here is that Powell's getting into reckless territory, right? Mm-hmm. He's making these policy decisions and then he's seeing bank failures and he's adjusting them a little, but he's still edging towards kind of the, the brink of cascading bank failures. I think Bianco's criticism is he knows this is a risky game. Why mm-hmm. are we playing this game with uh, the US banking system right now? So that is the critique. Of Powell's actions.
1: I guess the illustration that I gave is that, oh, bank failure, Fed steps in and like cradles it on the way down, really depends on that they fail in a very orderly manner. And I don't think that <laughs> Gracefully that's how fail. that works. I think uh, orderly and contagion banking crisis are not things that I would put into the same sentence.
0: It's a little bit like the the bike wobbling downhill you know when you start to oscillate and it's like okay now now we're oscillating right here and then it gets to a point where it's catastrophic unrecoverable and the bike tips over if it's going too fast and that is the worry here if
1: it's going too slow and if it's going too slow it's because interest rates are adding friction to economic transactions and so in order to correct for wobbles we need it to go faster which means we got to lower the interest rates, baby
0: (laughs) we got to take them down let's get that fed pivot going Well, David, I think that's what we have to talk about next. First Republic bank failure, the biggest since 2008. That's coming up next. What else we got?
1: Coinbase International launches in Bermuda. So one trad bank down, but one crypto bank up. Eigenlayer mainnet is incoming as well. The Sui mainnet as well. Bankless listener. Put a number in your mind as to what you think the market cap of SUI is because that number will come later in the show as soon as
0: we talk to these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially... David, we have Bank Failure Season 2. The second biggest bank failure ever in US history just happened this week. And I feel like people are barely talking about it. Yeah. They're kind of talking about it. This is a First Republic Bank based in San Francisco, California. Pretty big. 200 billion plus in assets. So this was a big one. David, what happened?
1: Well, I'll think I'll throw the question to you, Ryan. What happened that was different than any of the other banks? So, uh, banks bought a long a lot of long-term dated securities and then the Fed jacked up the interest rates and then the bank this bank failed just like the other ones. This one was different in that it got a 30 billion dollar injection from JP Morgan and a number of other too big to fail banks. And then that depleted, that also ran out because customers chose to withdraw, uh, and then eventually the FDIC said, like, man, this bank's not going to make it, we're going to throw the white flag on behalf of yeah, that, First Republic. That, I mean, that that's basically my, what that happened. my interpretation of events.
0: So regulators took possession of First Republic on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the biggest bank failure since 2008, uh, the second biggest in U.S. history, when there was a bank called Washington Mutual that exploded in the 2008 crisis that was um, my first I,
1: bank ever as a child that was my first really? checking
0: account yep. uh, your first was Washington Mutual is that based in like uh, the Seattle area yeah uh-huh. Washington uh-huh. State yeah yeah well so it no longer exists um, uh-huh. I'm not sure what happened to them I'm sure they become became part of a, a, a bigger bank here um, but y- what yeah do you I do think with that account. It's still there. You still got I it, Dan. I, I think this has a lot of similarities with the first bank failures that we saw, in, yeah. in including Silicon Valley Bank. The difference here is, you know how Silicon Valley Bank, their their big kind of, uh, in, you know, uh, debt was in startups, various yeah. Silicon Valley startups. Well, for First Republic, they were in the jumbo mortgage business. So oh, you know, not Big crypto? mansions not crypto big houses that's not what gary gensler said (laughs) it's another asset well he he yes he he'll probably blame this one on crypto too david don't don't you worry give him some time all all right have faith in gensler uh jumbo mortgages were their shtick okay and so when rates were low of course they gave out a ton of these loans and you know as one does and then the fed raised rates the value of the mortgages the collateral went down of course but then also yeah the uh the the treasuries on the balance sheet also went down in value too, under par Mm -hmm. value, thus making the bank insolvent. So for me, it reminds me a lot of Silicon Valley Bank. So all the lessons that we learned a couple of weeks ago have come into play here, except the asset class wasn't Silicon Valley tech companies. It was jumbo mortgages. Well, It also also wasn't
1: United States treasuries. And so I think this is probably like where the fear kind of strikes. Two, Two reasons. One, we have another bank crisis, bank failure, excuse me, not, I guess a single bank failure isn't a crisis, but like all of the other banks that failed happened those numbers of weeks ago in that like pocket of time. It's all related. Now we have this bank fa- failing for the same reasons, different asset class.
0: So mortgages,
1: they, they not di- they, did have,
0: they did have some treasuries on the balance sheet, so that didn't help. But yes, go on.
1: I think the point is, this is like the balance sheet doesn't matter what the balance sheet is. Doesn't matter what the asset class is. The issue was that the, the Fed raised interest rates too fast. So it doesn't matter like was it United States Treasuries or just like long dated securities or whatnot. Yeah. Like all banks are getting distressed by the whiplash of the uh, rising interest rates. Particularly and also the the timing. Like how long were the how long ago were the other banking crises? Like six weeks ago, right? Yeah. And so six weeks later, we have another big banking crisis. It would have been made. It would. I would have felt better. It would be easier to be comfy if all of the banks collapsed in the same time frame. (laughs) And then it was over. And then it was over. But now we have one that's six weeks later. And so the question is, to me, that I have is like, okay, clearly the common denominator is not the asset class. This is not. This contagion is not contained to a specific. No, it's not just crypto. It's not not just just
0: Silicon Valley tech companies for sure. This is something different.
1: This and that's the big common denominator is the whiplash behind the rising interest rates, which affects all banks. And now, six weeks later from the crisis, we have another bank that fails, which begs the question: How do you know when it's over? And are is are there more shoes to drop? Are there yeah? More banks I mean, to fail. So this and are is are we at I'm, the beginning of this thing?
0: Another pattern here for you is another mid-sized bank, basically. It's not one of the too big big-to-fail banks here, right? It's another Silicon Valley bank-sized bank bank that just uh, went belly up. And um, yeah, so in the common denominator, as you said, is rising interest rates. So here's here's what happened. The bank failed effectively. The FDIC stepped in. Uh, That happened on Monday. And then what they do is they auction off all of the assets, all the people's savings account, In uh, First Republic, somebody's got to bank them still, right? The FDIC is not going to uh, just say, sorry, your money's gone, right? Of course, shareholders get wiped out in these sorts of situations. So that means a bigger bank has to go buy the assets, Mm -hmm. buy First Republic. So it can still say functional and operational. That bigger bank happened to be our friends over at JP Morgan, Mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon and company. Uh, There was an auction. Uh, JP Morgan won the auction against two other bidders. Those other bidders were also very large banks. And so JP Morgan ended up with the $92 billion in deposits, which includes $30 billion that it and the other large banks put into First Republic to try to prop them up previously, as you mentioned, and $137 billion in loans and $30 billion in securities. Okay, So that's what they took over. So the bigger bank just got even bigger. And then the FDIC absorbed the losses on the mortgages and the commercial loans, and it also provided a fifty billion dollar credit line. So it's going to cost the FDIC deposit insurance fund about thirteen billion dollars. SVB cost twenty billion for comparison. These losses, David, hmm. what happens to them? Oh, the FDIC just takes care of them. They were socialized. We taxpayers, right. we, like it cost us. And so these risky investments. And um, the interest rate rise is ultimately costing taxpayers. So that, that is the cost. We were talking about like earlier of, um, you know, Joe Powell is hopefully like cradling these banks down as they die. Well, there is a cost to this. And, and the cost is JP Morgan gets bigger. JP Morgan, mm-hmm. David, now has 10% of all American deposits. All right. Under federal regulation, it actually can't rise anymore. They made an exception for JP Morgan. Right to actually make this acquisition. So the banks just get even bigger. The too-big-to-fail banks get bigger. And then also these losses are socialized, right? It's like the average taxpayer wasn't responsible for that loan for a jumbo mortgage. I mean, this just this is reminiscent of 2008 all over again. And you also can't say, um, wait, I don't before, think Congress-
1: Before you move on. So I, I heard a slightly different story. So I wanted to throw in what I think could be a correction here. Um, Taxpayers are not, it's not going to the taxpayers, it's going to because of the FDIC deposit insurance fund, that comes from banks, banks pay for that, so that comes from bank money to fill up the deposit insurance fund. So that's coming out of that, but where does the banks get the money to pay for the insurance fund, like fees on customers and in the economy. And so while taxpayers aren't being charged directly, it ultimately goes back to the consumer because banks are going to have to charge higher rates for all their products and services down the line. That was the, the take that I heard. Um, and then the other thing that I the the take that I heard is like you they, you said that they made an exception so that JP Morgan could buy this bank. Um, that was not an exception made. Right now, that was an exception already made in Dodd-Frank forever ago, where big banks that are so large above a certain threshold can't get bigger by buying banks unless that bank is failing. And so this was an exception built into Dodd-Frank forever ago. That, that was, these are my interpretations of, of or what I've
2: heard.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, David. Those are definitely worthwhile details to to clarify. So the banks got bigger. Um, the losses were socialized in the form of higher you know, bank fees. Right. You know, taxpayers, it ultimately paid yes, ultimately get paid, ultimately by, paid, yes, yeah. ultimately get paid by, by the people. I also think that it's becoming less defensive. It's, I haven't heard anyone in Congress, anyone in the US government blame a particular party for this one, right? Mm-hmm. Very easy to blame kind of the, the crypto bros first, and then more widely, kind of the tech bros, Silicon Valley people for the second. But when you have this pattern of, of mid-sized banks failing, right? then like, who are you gonna blame now? This is starting to look systemic, guys. It's starting to look yeah. like a problem. And I wanna pull up this chart. I think this was the graphic of the week. Did you see this, David? Yeah. Whew. Describe what we're looking at. This is a timeline, I'll, I'll start by describing. This is a timeline from 2002 all the way to 2023. Mm-hmm. And we see on this timeline a, a series of, of circles, series of what look like mm-hmm. dots. And the size of the circle represents uh, the number of assets in the bank that failed. So for every bank failure, there is a circle. And the really big banks get bigger circles. And so, David, describe what we see uh, in bank failures around the 2008 to 2012 time range. What are we looking at?
1: Yeah, so we talked about how the First Republic Bank is the l- second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Well, the first largest is the big blue, the the, the big circle that is fr- in the two thousand eight h- uh, housing crisis. Washington Mutual Bank, three hundred seven billion dollars, and then you see like, how would you describe it? Just like dots and
0: and stacked snowballs all sn- the way up snowballs. like a, a so mountain. Like
1: big big circle and then yeah. a mountain of tiny little snowballs that you actually can't. Oh, Sprightly mountain. Like, there's like 300 dots in there of various yeah. sizes, but they're all small. And only three of these dots I can actually re- that actually have the names of the banks in them. So Indy Mac Bank, Colonial Bank, Guarantee Bank. All the other ones are just dots because they're too small to actually fit the names of the banks into. So that's these are all bank failures. Two. All bank, bank failures. failures of so it, what happened to these dots?
0: Prices. What happened to these dots, David?
1: Om um, nom 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 nom.
0: <laughs> is that yes. a technical term? <laughs>
1: yeah. They got gobbled up by the bigger banks. Yeah. right? And so fast forward to where we are today, 2003. There are only three big dots. First Real Republic Bank, Bank at $229 billion. Silicon Valley Bank at $2009 billion. And Signature Bank at $110 billion. Which goes back to my question. This is just season two of the big crisis TV show. How many seasons are there? Is the right side of this timeline, which we are about to go into in the 2023, 2024, going to be similar to what we see on the left, but with bigger dots? Right. And look how big these dots more are money already. Now. There's a lot more money out there in banks. And right, like, is there like 300 dots in 2008?
0: We got three dots. <laughs> yeah, picture. If you, we're trying to describe this, the best way is just to go to YouTube and get the visual. Yes. Okay, podcast listeners. So sometimes you just got to capitulate and, and look yeah. at the video here to get to get the graphic. But what we're looking at is a mountain of snowballs in in mm-hmm. two thousand eight versus a snowman in two thousand twenty three. Right. Right. We just got big circles and a slightly smaller really? circle and then kind of a head circle. That's what that's right. what we're looking at. And this represents David. What looks like the second, third and fourth largest bank failure in u.s history and it all happened this year yeah it's pretty big like (laughs) this doesn't look good this doesn't look healthy and yeah Mm. to your question is what happens next uh david do you want to hear arthur hayes take hit me with it all right so here's arthur hayes uh of all of the season one banking crisis conversations we had. Mm-hmm. The Arthur Hayes conversation sticks out the most in my mind mm-hmm. and I think is maybe the most predictive of what we're seeing start to happen. And if you recall, David, from that conversation, in fact, you were on it, I was, and I just listened to it a couple times after that episode. He basically no, predicted. <laughs> okay, I, I will remind you. I will uh, pod explain it to you, David. Um, it's like he said that the midsize and small banks were in real trouble in the U.S., that they're basically mm. insolvent, but slow motion type insolvent. So he wasn't predicting that Bitcoin would go to a million in 90 days and you know massive bank crisis. But he said like it could take a year or two and the Fed would have to basically step in and do something absolutely massive that would result in a whole bunch of money printing, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of money printing. So here's his take after the FRC, the First Republic Collapse. A longer essay coming soon on my take. This J.P. Morgan First Republic uh, deal means the U.S. regulators decided to nationalize the banking system, nationalize the banking system. He goes on, the eight too-big-to-fail banks are effectively nationalized because they have government guarantee on their entire deposit base. They will not be allowed to fail regardless of decisions they make. Socialized losses, privatized gains, it's a great deal, but... When called upon, the eight too-big-to-fail banks must absorb their shitty cousins who couldn't handle the rough-and-tumble free market. The the prodigal children's equity holders will get a zero first, but the depositors will find a new home in a safe, too-big-to-fail bank. That bank, of course, is JP Morgan in this case. The government will provide rule exemptions and mates rates on loans, like how the OCC waived deposit concentration limits and FDIC loaned $50 billion to JP Morgan to get them to do the deal. But a deal will get done. The whole point is for the federal government to claim it isn't bailing out a failed bank, but a private company is. It's a bit of left-hand, right-hand, but those are the policies of the day. Just look at how China allocates losses as a blueprint for the US. As long as inflation remains high and the politics surrounding banking credit and debit are toxic, there will be more contorted solutions to try to confuse you as to who bears the loss. If you aren't one of the eight too-big-to-fail banks, you are effed. As long as inflation is sticky at these high levels and possibly rising. Today, I will choose a bank with large CRE exposure and 50% to 50% OTM puts that expire before June. This is Arthur, of course, being the trader and betting against uh, small and mid-sized banks. What do you think of this idea, nationalizing? We are de facto nationalizing the U.S. banking system.
1: Well, It reminds me of the uh, article that um, he wrote, which brought him onto the podcast last time, which the whole theme of that article is... um, the destination is known but the route is uncertain. He was actually applying it in a different uh, way, but I'll apply it here. The destination is a nationalized financial system. Uh because that is that is the era that we live in, the era of the CBDC. It becomes really easy to roll out a CBDC when there's only eight banks in the commercial banking sector. And so like that is the conclusion of things. A financial system that is just highly centralized controlled with a ton of oversight and a ton of regulation because it's not hard to control things when there's only eight banks. And so this is, to me, a convergence upon that. We we talk about CBDCs and like the evils of CBDCs because it just means central control. So this is the convergence that we're going
0: towards. Here's the insidious thing about this too. is like you heard him talk about like these contorted measures that were being made. They're not going to announce that the Mm -hmm. US banking system is being nationalized. There's never going to be legislation that goes in front of Congress, which is like, check yes or no, let's do a Mm -hmm. vote. Should the US banking system be nationalized or not? Mm -hmm. It'll happen like this, slowly. And with them doing the the theater of basically, we're not nationalizing it, it's private. See, JP Morgan, look, a private company went and won the bid, right? So it'll it'll happen. Like no one will directly tell you that that Mm -hmm. is what is actually happening as, as an investor and as a participant in this economy, you just have to keep your eyes open and connect the dots and see the pattern playing out. And you're right. I think that is the destination of this. Just don't expect the trumpet from Jerome Powell saying we are nationalizing the banking system because they know that that uh, would be soundly rejected by the American people.
1: Well, the, the way that you're saying is that is that like they are the puppeteers of this master plan and they, they want that. I'm not necessarily sure that they do want that. It is, if you zoom out and see nation state and fiat currency systems as the powers that be and with a mind of its own, that is a conclusion because the aggregate incentives pushes it there. Oh, yeah. But like, individual I, players, like Jerome Powell's like, I'm going to nationalize the banking sector. I don't. He's not doing that. He's no, no, just no, one no. cell I, in a larger body with a direction that it wants to go
0: in. I agree with that, too. I don't think that there's like an intent to, like, I'm an evil right. emperor to nationalize this system. But there is an intent not to tell you that that is the That's game being played. That's 100% true. That That's is exactly intentful. right. They're not right. going, like, they know what they're doing. They know. They know the where outcomes. this inevitably goes. They're not stupid. Is kind of what right. I'm saying. They're not like, "Oops, mm-hmm. I guess we have to take over another bank. What's going to happen?" They know right. exactly where this is leading, but they're not going to tell you that this is where it's leading. Dubious. They're going to boil the frog, and which is exactly right. what's happening. So, meanwhile, speaking of this, Bology, all right? Do you remember the 90-day Bitcoin bet? Yeah, he's six capitulated weeks ago. on it. Yeah. Uh, so six weeks. It was due uh June 17th he bet that bitcoin would hit a million dollars there'd be a cascade of bank failures what is the status update on that david
1: Bology tweets out i just burned a million to tell you they're printing trillions he really loves his like limericks he loves <laughs> he's like, good good rhyming little like quips. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> um the million dollar bet is now closed by mutual agreement i made one million dollar improvable on-chain donations which you can verify half a million to Bitcoin Core Development, half a million to give directly, half a million to Medlock, who I think is the winner of the bet. Uh, and then he goes on to explain, like, why did he do this? He's basically saying the whole, like, BitSignal was a marketing stunt that he has paid. He just took $1 million to the face to broadcast that they are going to print a trillion dollars. Um, so that's what, he's, that's what he said.
0: Did you watch his video, David?
1: I watched part of it.
0: Okay, I, I, I watched it, it was good. It was a lot of our, our episode with him. Yeah, kind it, of, all, uh, recut, it actually recast. made me a little
1: bit frustrated. I was like, Bology, like you can say things in nine minutes. <laughs> Next time we do a podcast, can you do something like this, please? <laughs> I don't know,
0: I enjoy the long form with Bology. Although, although I think we had like uh, two and a half hours of content and we kind of pared that down to like, yeah. you know, under two hours or something. Yeah, but,
1: an hour 40, uh, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: So I, I, I think the TLDR for people, we'll include a link in the show notes, is um, Bology says, it's still going to happen. It's just yeah. not going to happen in 90 days. Right. And he gave the parallels to this is like 2008. Uh, he said Bernanke said it was fine, uh, to th- that the economy is fine. And then two quarters later, we got hit with 2008 major recession. And right. so he draws parallels to that. He also draws parallels By to COVID. By the way, COVID.
1: all of the federal like chair members and everyone else is like, the economy is totally
0: sound. Banking system's fine, guys. Like that same was the thing. messaging this week. Yeah, he's he basically pulled up press releases in the same time right. period, and then he's like, "Look what Bernanke said. We're fine. I, you know, didn't use the exact same terms as as um, you know, uh, kind of the landing the plane term that that Powell uses, but basically said we're fine, mild, re- no recession. It'll be fine." It's and chill, then, guys, we two got quarters this. later, it didn't happen. So he he's basically saying, "Look at the signals. We got debt." at astronomical um, levels. We've got de-dollarization happening. He's got some charts about that. We've got gold buying from central banks at all-time highs outside of the U.S. particular. And now we have bank failures and runs. And so he, he's basically saying, I lost the bet, but I still got the word out on right. the most important thing. That's kind of his take on it. Well, um, which is interesting because he didn't exactly tell us in that conversation. We asked him if this was sort of just a marketing stunt. He said, no, it wasn't.
1: So I remember I remember thinking about that part uh, because he I can't remember the details but I think there he might have been saying I am not doing this to pump the Bitcoin price to make a profit which is different than saying I am doing this as a marketing stunt.
0: I also think he still views that um, there is a probability that it could happen in ninety days and when we had that conversation with him he was like yeah there's a probability that could happen it's not a certainty all of this is like probabilistic. And actually, um, this is, I think, worth watching. I think we should watch this clip, because the question is, Okay, Balaji, if you still think it's going to happen, and it's not happening in 90 days now, and you're willing to capitulate on that, when is it going to happen? So this is what he says here.
3: And so then, of course, the question is, Okay, but when? Everybody wants to know exactly when things are going to happen. So I don't have a crystal ball. Um, My guess is 10% months, uh, 70% years, 19% decades. 1% 1% centuries. Okay? Uh, I can give a case for each of those, that when I say 10% months, what I'm saying is you know, we have some serious crisis in months, or 70% I think it happens in years. And one way of thinking about this is sort of the you know, stay in dollars or exit spectrum. If you think the current status quo of printing can go on for an endless amount of time, the US establishment de facto believes it can go on for centuries, then you stick on one side. If you are seeing fire alarms, you're seeing klaxons, then you exit, whatever that means to you. Personally, as I said, I'm like 10% months, 70% years, 90% decades, 1% centuries. You should figure out what your own percentage is there. If you think that all of this is totally stupid, you know, and uh, and the U.S., of course, has infinite <laughs> hit points and the Fed can print forever, then you're at centuries and you should ignore all of this. But if you have some probability that actually system collapse may happen sooner than people think, then you should, you know, take take appropriate action, whatever.
0: What do you think of that, David? So he's giving a much more probabilistic bet here, right? And this kind of implies, you know, for him, if it's 10% months, maybe he has 10% in fiat, for example, 10% right. in, the do- in the dollar. And that's right. how he allocates his, uh, his portfolio.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm reminded that there's that quote that sometimes there are decades when weeks happen, and then sometimes there are weeks when decades happen. And I'm also reminded that biology was way ahead of the curve with COVID, which was an exponential event. 2008 was an exponential event. The worry that we had with the, with the snowman and what could happen in the future, like what we're saying is like, there could be an exponential event in the future. So it's not like, it's not like if Bitcoin goes to a million, it's not going to be like at the last second, it touches a million and it just gets there and then it comes back down. It's going to be like, no, it'd be like, it skyrockets and it breaks the meter because of an exponential event. Um, 10% is exactly like what he said, is an exponential event. It's a 10% chance, like we live in a time of chaos. Uh, the pendulum of the global order is no longer in the time, in the era of stability. That was the last four decades. It's been shifting towards chaos and it's been shifting that way for a long time
0: now. Um, yeah, yeah. This, when you break it down. He, here, here's what you can do. You can. Um, what I love about this sort of thing is you can actually bet whether right. biology is right or not, and you don't. It doesn't have to be a binary, all or nothing type of right. thing. You have to be like, oh, it's it's certain. So, and it's certain it's going to happen in the next six months. Therefore, mm-hmm. I'm going to take all of my fiat. I'm going to convert it to crypto. Right. Mm-hmm. You you can just do a little bit of it or a lot of it. Depending on where you are in kind of the spectrum. But I will say, I I do, over the long run, I will not, I'm definitely not betting that Bology is, is wrong oh, over like the God, long no. time period. It's God, like, no. this seems totally reasonable to me that 10% probability happens in months, 70% 10% years. 10%
1: in months sounds like 10% in 2023. There's a 10% chance that Bitcoin hits $1 million this year.
0: But, we, and we know, David, that it's 100% probability that fiat is going to like, trend towards zero over a long enough time span that's every single fiat system like go chart it over time ray dalio does this wonderfully right right? it's like all of them hit a reset mark and we're like what 50 years into this experiment with uh you know the the 1970s and the us dollar so it's gonna happen at some point it's just a matter of when and i don't think people fully understand that and balaji does so i'm glad he's getting that message out
1: did you? I don't know if we have it in the agenda, but do you, the conversation of the $1 trillion coin is back on the menu. Did you see oh, that? Oh, yes.
0: I, yes. I saw some of this, yeah. This yeah
1: is we, um, we got some takes later in the show. But yeah, so the, the, the establishment has resurfaced the possibility of minting a $1 trillion coin.
0: What does that tell you? I mean, I'm i sure that was a snippet in Balaji's uh, video, too. Yeah. I think he's yeah. brought that up, actually. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's that. Bank failures, Balaji capitulating on his bet, but not really. He still thinks mm-hmm. he's going to be right in the long term. David, we'll talk about Coinbase for a minute. They are going international. What does that mm-hmm. mean? The Coinbase
1: International Exchange has launched. This is up and running, uh, offering Bitcoin and Ether perpetual futures settled in USEC with up to five x leverage to institutional clients and people in eligible jurisdictions outside of the U.S. So Coinbase enters the international game. Uh, just at a high level, Ryan, like, what do you think about this?
0: What's your take? I think they're not putting their eggs in the U.S. basket anymore, not, at least no, not yeah, all totally. of them. Yeah. That's is smart. And the other thing I think is like, wow, I'm an American, and uh, if you're in the U.S., if you're American listening to this episode, you don't have access to these products wow, because wow. your government won't let you. Yeah. You you live in a financial prison that will not allow you. It doesn't think that you are able to handle Coinbase, yeah, Bitcoin, and Perpetuals. Boy. Yeah. And no, that kind of sucks. with big boy toys. So this is like, this is not an unregulated um, marketplace that they're running. This is, um, you know, in the EU, uh, they can they can offer this sort of thing, and so but and they can't do that in America. It's sad, I think.
1: My take on this is this is really bullish for Coinbase because <laughs> we know that they're like the FTX US versus FTX back before we thought it knew it was a fraud. FTX uh, international dominated in spot revenue and perp's revenue. Just like it
0: was just a gargantuan. So someone's got to step in, basically.
1: Yeah, there's a huge void in the market. And so like it's bullish for Coinbase because Coinbase gets to step into that market and service that demand that we know is verifiably there. And of all the other uh, offshore derivative exchanges that that have all come and gone in the world of crypto, this is the first time that we have seen a meaningful, entrenched, established Player that people trust that d- operates by the rules and operates in the in the light, not in the shadows. And so, it's bullish for Coinbase. I also think it's bullish for this industry because finally we have a legitimate player to fill that void, and we have a legitimate player answering towards that demand. And so it's bullish for two reasons.
0: Yeah, at at some level, the uh, the crypto exchange game is very much about just outlasting everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I throw Kraken in this category too, of like mm-hmm. just. Over a decade of servicing crypto and just not necessarily being fastest, right? But just being the most secure, most stable, right. most predictable, like doing the core things really well. And yeah. at the end of the day, the FTX is they burn out. I
1: mean, like being being fast is a huge liability in this industry. Look at the so. capital.
0: You know, I think the so.
1: low and slow game uh plays out real well in
0: crypto. Yeah. A tortoise not hare. Um yeah. David, there's an entire episode about this with Tom Duff Gordon, who's the VP of international policy that we put out. You guys will catch that on the feed. We'll include a link in the show notes as well. Also, some more news from Coinbase. Uh, do you remember they uh, they picked a fight with Gary Gensler? They, they, <laughs> they, they're they bringing the SEC to court. What's this tweet say, David? Here's an update on that.
1: Yeah, so they got a response from the court. So The Third Circuit court just issued a text-only order directing the SEC to file a response to our mandamus petition. I hate legal talk. Within <laughs> Damn,
0: 10 days. <laughs> Is that
1: how do you pronounce it? And what does that
0: mean? Do you know I, no, I don't. Man dammas. Let's go with Man. that. Anyway, <laughs> someone can someone the lawyer TLDR, can. TLDR,
1: the SEC has to respond to Coinbase's petition that they filed last July in twenty twenty two in the next ten days because Coinbase said they were gonna take the, the SEC to court if they didn't. Uh and so at the direction of the court, the respondent is ordered to file any answer to the petition within
0: ten days of the date of this order. Um So Gary, you got nine days from the time of (laughs) (laughs) from the time that this episode releases. If you're hearing us, you got nine days to reply to this. Uh, All right, David, what do we have coming up next?
1: A bunch of stuff, Ryan. We got Venmo bringing crypto wallets to 60 million Americans. We got Eigenlayer Stage One mainnet set to launch. We got the Sui mainnet. Again, pull out the number of the market cap that you think that it is. We got an Axelar announcement, and then also the newest Zach XBT victim just dropped. So all of that and more. But first,
0: a moment to talk about some of our fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially... David, this is absolutely huge. No one's talking about it. Venmo is bringing crypto wallets, the gateway to crypto wallets, anyway, to 20 million Americans. Do you want to hear the... Uh- Ryan Sean Adams hype tweet about this before we uh, get into what happened.
1: I'm straight into my veins, sir.
0: All right, let's go. Okay, Venmo is now allowing its 60 million customers to withdraw directly to a non-custodial crypto wallet. Exit the banks and go bankless. Fintech has become a gateway to crypto. Crypto is quietly eating the world. Just no one is noticing because it's a bear market that's the take here
1: there's a lot of words in that tweet that I like man
0: (laughs) well tell us what really happened ground us in reality what's what's going on with uh with Venmo when we get past the hype tweets here introducing crypto transfers for Venmo customers what does that mean
1: the big news here is that Venmo is no longer just a place to buy crypto assets but you can now make ledger updates to these crypto assets because mm. these things are money and you need to make ledger updates to money because that's how money work. Uh, so you can send your crypto to other Venmo users inside of the Venmo ledger, the Venmo centralized database ledger, but you can Sci-chain? also, side chain, side chain maybe. Will, but you can also make a decentralized open permissionless blockchain ledger update by sending your crypto assets to another wallet. This is just basically Venmo doing payments. So which isn't any surprise. But it's a very big company with 60 million users making on-chain ledger updates of Ether transfers and stablecoin transfers in using our blockchain payment rails. Uh, yeah. And so this is all rolling out to customers May of 2023. I know it's like it's a small deal because, yes, we can, we can now transfer crypto. We've, all, we've already been transferring crypto. But now Venmo, 60 million people, are able to transfer crypto
0: using Venmo. So big. I think it's the big thing here is to non custodial wallets. That's the exit, right? Like this is like DeFi mullet thesis playing out, which is basically Mm -hmm. like fintech provides a user interface for crypto, which is more difficult, but it's all built on top of those ledgers, the decentralized ledger of um, Ethereum, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, and now we can hold our own private keys. So Mm -hmm. our job, I think, as a crypto community, is to get those sixty million people into bankless wallets that's what we got to go do next we got to go do that before they shut the gates (laughs) before they shut the gates before they stop letting us david we got mainnet season here who's going to mainnet this week
1: coming up first in mainnet season we got eigenlayer so eigenlayer has been extremely hyped this is the topic of restaking eigenlayer really opened up the door to the concept of restaking and so they are launching their mainnet stage one stage one mainnet uh soon Soon TM. They said they've got over 9,000 submissions in, with interest between 0.1 ETH and 30,000 ETH to all begin doing restaking things, to restake for other networks. Uh, and so What does restaking stage mean for include, people, right? I'm so glad you asked, Ryan. Restaking is when you stake your ETH to Ethereum and then you stake it again. <laughs> double do any, stake? Do you have further <laughs> questions?
0: <laughs> okay, so does that mean I get... like? I could stake it twice in Ethereum, or am I staking it somewhere else? What does that
1: mean? So restaking, are you familiar with merge mining? I know some listeners aren't, so I'll answer the question anyways. Merge mining is when you have an an ASIC, like a Bitcoin ASIC, and you use your ASIC to mine Bitcoins, but you could also mine another network at the same time that operates on the same hashing algorithm. So if if you're mining for Bitcoin but you're just doing a SHA-256 mining algorithm, you can also simultaneously mine for another chain because it uses the same hashing algorithm. Restaking Mm -hmm. is the same concept for Ethereum proof-of-stake. For a token. For a token, exactly. Ether. Ether. Exactly. So you stake your Ether to Ethereum. But then, instead of also, when you stake your Ether to Ethereum, you are signing up for slashing conditions. If you propose an invalid block, you get slashed. If you missed your block slot, you get marginally penalized. There are certain slashing conditions that come with the responsibility of being an Ether holder, an Ether staker, and restaking lets you sign up for new slashing conditions for new networks, completely new networks. Another layer two, uh, an Oracle network literally anything uh, and so this is why when i when i just leave it open-ended and like let you stake it again it's apparent it's an, an intentionally open-ended you can stake it to any network that needs security just by signing on for new slashing conditions and eigenlayer is like the clear, hub for all of this
0: you're not just signing up for new slashing conditions because that doesn't sound too fun you're, right. you're signing up for rewards new as rewards. well right a you're higher take, you're interest, taking risk higher and rates you're getting paid for it Exactly. And so the risk is the slashing, but the reward is basically if you have a 4.5% APR Mm -hmm. on ether staked in that protocol, you can also take that staked eth and you can use it to secure another protocol. Now you have some risk there, of course, but then you get some reward for that. So this is really cool. This is like ether as an internet bond. I think we're going to do entire episodes on this concept of restaking the future Mm because it is that big for eth as a, a monetary unit and also for like the entirety of of cryptocurrency i mean it's going to shake everything up if this is successful i think
1: yeah and if bankless listeners minds are boggled and you have further questions i have great news for you an article that i wrote went out on the bankless newsletter thursday yesterday for the time of of listening which are kind of the theme is like the big questions that restaking brings to the table, that EigenLayer brings to the table, and so I explain restaking in further detail, and I got I go through what I'm calling the restaking meta. This is a this is a big deal, by the way. I would like to, I would like to point my big. flag and say this is a significant deal. In the in the same yes. way that like once upon a time we had these arbitrage bots, and then one of these arbitrage bots did something weird by like reordering transactions when they were proposing oh, a MED. block, yeah. and then we discovered the world of MEV, and like our yeah. minds were blown, and it's like, like the entire industry shifted this is like restaking. And so the whole, like I Justin Drake, Dankrad, Vitalik are all talking about how does restaking change the natural equilibrium of the staking industry? Because we don't know the answer to that yeah, question. That,
0: MEV is a good analogy here because there's some good things about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it increases, you know, yield and rates and all sorts of things, but there's also some scary things about it right. in the, in the way they could shake things up and change uh, protocol incentives. So, we're doing episodes on this too, right? right? In the future, so we have uh, an episode for you. But but that was just the first of a couple of mainnets. What's this one, David?
1: Sui, the Sui network. Uh, I think the uh, the sister network to Aptos. I think these are like coming around the same time. Uh, the newest, shiniest layer one blockchain on on main nets. Uh, so they are boasting a whopping number of one hundred globally distributed validators to achieve a peak throughput of 300,000 transactions per second with finality inside of That's a lot 480 of transactions. milliseconds. So these are the numbers, mm. the super speedy layer one. Um, I have not looked under the hood of this thing, but I'm going to classify this as what I would call a juice layer one.
0: Um, Ryan, have you come up with your number? I already knew the number, okay. so it's not fair, not fair for, for me you. to actually say what that number is, but I will say it surprised me when I first learned what the number was. The market cap of fully diluted valuation
1: of SUI is coming in at $13 billion. $13 billion. Wow. Just launched to mainnet. So went from series A, series B, launched to mainnet, coming in at $13 billion, making it the number 66 crypto asset. It's got a market cap of $700 million. And I would like to point out the discrepancy between the market cap and the fully diluted valuation. I will also say that some Layer 2s have this discrepancy as well. Um, $13 billion is a fully diluted valuation. $700 million is the market cap. That means there are $12.3 billion of tokens locked up that have not been issued to the network that has to be absorbed by sufficient buying pressure
0: to justify a $13 million valuation. Because the way like Sui and CoinGecko um, values market cap is based on the circulating supply. Which is very low right now. Right. 5%. I mean, is this that is right? a
1: normal thing at the beginning of all networks, but it is also a symptom of a VC chain. Um, interestingly, it's something
0: you have to watch out for because right. when you're buying a SUI like token, you're actually, I think, you're totally, I always value these things as a fully diluted valuation because this is long term what it's going to be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, the Series B, uh, Ryan, do you know who led the SUI, 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 Series B?
0: Uh, Polychain, Multicoin, one of the big layer two investors. You know, you know the names. Am I right?
1: No, uh, FTX Ventures, um, which, oh. <laughs> which they were forced to sell their stake for ninety six million dollars recently, which was okay. probably a fumble because if I don't know how they valued it, um, they sold. They made. They had to liquidate for ninety six million dollars. I don't know what the valuation is, but like. The Series B valuation was $2 billion, and we are currently at a 6.5x of that. Uh, and Oof. so I don't know if that was a fumble or not, but um, I'm assuming they sold it somewhere between $2 billion and $13 billion, but not $13 billion.
0: I guess they didn't want to speculate, huh? Uh, yes. All right, so we got and some more releases. I, and I just say
1: that the tone that I just gave about Sui was totally biased and definitely negative, and I'm totally aware of that, and that's my deal. <laughs> 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 wait
0: your deal is being biased and negative yeah towards centralized new layer ones totally yeah. why because they have to prove themselves or because you hate yeah. them or because you're, you're, you're yeah. bag biased and you're angry that you didn't uh get on this on this deal why 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 is your tone negative
1: uh because i believe in constrained layer ones that are not led by VCs. we've played we've done this before we've done this we? before we've seen this Many game times. we already
0: know how this works <laughs> Many times. You definitely have to prove yourself. That's a hefty valuation mm-hmm. for just shipping to for, Mainnet. For, on an, a new for, layer. An,
1: for an empty ghost chain. Yeah.
0: Hefty valuation. There's, there's a valuation. lot of growth
1: priced in there.
0: All right. Um, Axelar, what's, what's up with them? Going to Mainnet too. That's number three.
1: Yeah, so Axelar is a network. It's a IBC Cosmos network that connects Cosmos to Arbitrum. So it's a bridge protocol, which previously bridge. Bankless has been like dubious about and I'm, I'm still not totally sold but something's new about Axelar, we did a show with them which is why i know about this um they have this thing called gmp general messaging protocol so instead of ryan instead of sending tokens cross-chain they send computation cross-chain so the tokens hmm. stay on the respective chains but the logic passes through chains so there's oh, a that seems totally
0: yeah, that I I don't have a problem with that. Right. The, the, the challenge with um bridges is kind of like the security risk Token you security. expose yourself yeah. to. Yeah. Token security risk. And you're saying it's not, you know, it's not taking that type of risk. It can take that type of risk.
1: But ah. it does the correct, in my opinion, the correct order of operations, which is it passes data, which is less valuable. And then once you build a secure messaging protocol and you go to mainnet with that and you and that's what you ship for production, and let that be battle tested in the wild. You can then layer tokens on top of that, mm. and like this was like the breakthrough that I had. Like, wait a second, why did all the other cross chain bridges not do that? Why did they just skip to the tokens? <laughs> uh, so there was a there's a bank. What, what kind of data? Like, what kind of data is it? Okay, What's so the, part of this, this announcement is this thing called Sommelier, which Zachy Mannion from the Cosmos ecosystem. We've had him on Bankless. Right. That's his project. Right. Sommelier is like this cross-chain yearn, if you will, and manages assets across chains, uh, but because of Axelar is able to manage. uh, So this is actually plugged into Arbitrum. So this is an Arbitrum Axelar Cosmos um, partnership collaboration where Sommelier Zaki's DeFi app is able to reach across chains and manage yield
0: and assets across chains. Yeah, great. manage yield and assets but not actually transfer not them transfer them. Yeah. so you're not actually changing the security profile of yes. the assets yes. themselves that's yes. correct huh yeah that's yes. kind of cool right yeah i mean yeah. personally i am i mean we know that bridges are going to be necessary right. with all these chains we need a lot of bridges yeah i think you're just you're more in favor of kind of like trustless bridges like layer two style bridges rather than having kind of a mesh network of dubious multi-sig bridges and yeah that gets spun up
1: inside of a bull market inside of fervors that are like our bridge is totally safe uh yeah oops (laughs) yeah no, north 3's got our money now i'm a a big
0: fan of putting logic at risk before putting tokens at risk hey there you go that seems logical david it does um all right and lastly david we've got a mainnet update this is really cool actually from lens so mm-hmm. they just launched a, a layer three Layer three i believe tell us what they launched and then uh, give us the stats mm-hmm. yeah so
1: they renamed the layer three and we weren't able to fit it into last week's roll-ups this layer three is called Momocha by lens so stani tweets out seven days later lens has finalized 5.4 thousand transactions for a total cost of 4.4 dollars 4. that's wow that's for all of the transactions so the average transaction on Momocha is 0. 0.0008 cents with a peak of 25,000 transactions per second.
0: That is awesome. Yeah. He, he says close to S3 pricing. That is uh Amazon AWS ah, data storage I pricing. Not, I needed you for that one. <laughs> well, you know what? I think this is awesome. This is basically me Remember Lens of course is a Web3 social protocol. So Web3 social can be cheap now mm-hmm. because we have broadband. Yeah. That's what's so exciting about this. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about these use cases moving forward now that we have very cheap transactions.
1: Right. And now I will uh, remind bankless listeners Does that $13 billion SUI network look all that great to you?
0: <laughs> stop. I, you said you would stop, David. Uh, you said did I stop. say I would stop? No, you didn't. No, you I said didn't. that is the new you, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I said <laughs> Never that's, <mind>. my deal. <laughs> <laughs> that's David's deal now. <laughs> So now I feel like I have to compensate by being nicer to the alternative layer ones. I don't think you need just to do for you. that. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to bring need balance to the universe. You don't need
1: to feel compelled to do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about this? Uh, newest Zach XPT victim. One crypto wallet launched 114 dodgy meme coins in 45 days. David, what's the story here?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh, there's just a business model, I guess, in like spinning up random new meme coins. Uh, Zach says every time stolen funds from the scam are sent, are then sent to the same deposit address. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing like some like n- weird new term uh, comes up uh, and then some, this one person makes a token that is that term and then convinces every pe- people to buy it and then makes some profit and then rinses and repeats that. Uh, Zach found them because they were using the same wallet. <laughs> wow. Look at that graphic. That is insane.
0: <laughs> I mean, let me just remind you, listener, because, mm-hmm. and I'm reminding myself, buying a meme coin is a choice that's a choice (laughs) that you are making all right you don't have to do this you You don't have to invest quote unquote in crypto this way in fact Mm. like i think you're deluding yourself if you're calling it an investment you take one percent two percent of your crypto portfolio and you do something like this totally degen that's one thing but like I think a lot, I don't understand why people are <laughs> playing these games, David, when there's active scammers out there just stealing their money. It seems And yet exhausting. we continue to play them.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, David, speaking of exhausting, um, the Dame Tax, or is that damn tax? I don't know. It feels like a damn tax. The Dame ta- Tax, making crypto miners pay for costs they impose on others. This is from the White House. Mm. Biden administration is proposing a 30% tax on crypto proof of work mining. What's your take on this?
1: Uh, Negative, Um, because in the same way that I do not think that we should politicize our banking sector, I also think that we should not politicize our public infrastructure, our energy grids. Grids, who should and can access energy, should be not governed by politics. And so my take is that if you are deeming some consumption of energy as some reasons to consume energy as legitimate, and others illegitimate, that is bad. And we should not have that involved with our government. Our government should not be able to dictate who can access energy. Energy, is real important. And so yes, it's easy to harp on crypto miners. No one likes crypto miners, except for the crypto industry and not honestly, not even all the crypto industry. And so it's really easy to go after crypto miners to pay for the cost that they impose on others, quote unquote. But it's also not saying that, hey, anytime you consume electricity for any reason, you are increasing the prices for everyone else because there's only so much electricity to go around. And that's how grids work. And so my take on this, is this is politicizing our public infrastructure to say that some things are good and some things are bad. And that is not the role of government is my take.
0: I think that's a controversial take in in some places because they'll say, David, are you ignoring the um, energy problem? Are Are you ignoring climate change? Are you doing that sort of thing? I I think I agree with your take too, uh, with one kind of uh, caveat or addendum. I think you were also saying this is when you're saying uh, you don't think we should politicize our energy grid. Some people will point out, well, David, it's already politicized. All right, like we regulate solar and wind farms and dirty coal, coal and all of these things. And my take is it's different when you regulate the supply versus mm-hmm. regulating the demand. Right. The demand part of things is where I think you get into particular trouble. Who is the government to decide how energy should be used based on okay. anything, right? Like that seems to be a slippery slope. Let's say, you know, the Grinch gets elected as president in 2024 and the Grinch just hates Christmas and puts a 40% tax on Christmas lights, right? I mean, like and Bitcoiners make this argument all the time um, Christmas lights actually cost more energy to the grid than Bitcoin mining. Right? That's insane. It's it's like and and so like um you get into this slippery slope of creating kind of like politicizing the demand, I would right. say, the demand side right. of the energy grid. And that's where I think you get in trouble. Right. But that's also a controversial opinion because people say, David, you're 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 ignoring climate change. But I don't I don't know that you're saying that. I think no. you'd probably be in favor of like no, know, just regulating tax, dirty coal plants on the supply the carbon side for instance. output
1: of energy producers. That's a simple answer
0: there. There you go. Well, that's what's happening. Biden administration, unfriendly to crypto for sure. We got your jobs of the week. Even in a bear market, crypto companies, crypto protocols, everybody's hiring. We've got a lot of jobs on the board. Why don't you tell them about the first one? An investment analyst intern. What is this? Oh, I'd be happy to, Ryan. Uh, bankless Ventures
1: has an investment analyst intern job. Yes, Bankless Ventures. Ryan and I, if you have not heard, are starting a VC firm with our good friend Ben Lakoff, uh, and we need an intern. Uh, I think this is probably one of the sickest jobs that exists in the crypto world. So if you are interested in interning for BVC Bankless Ventures, uh, click the link in the show notes Go to, or go to banklesspalletcom slash jobs. And I'll be talking a little bit more about Bankless Ventures uh, and what I am bullish about. <laughs> Hint, and perhaps bullish on bankless ventures.
0: <laughs> there you go. Uh, Coinbase needs a staff blockchain engineer as well and a staff smart contract engineer, a software engineer for mobile and a software engineer front end at Phantom. David's dancing now. You know he's excited about Premia, the Web3 product management architect <laughs> lead role, Denera, smart contract engineer, Uniswap hiring a ton. Back end engineer, product designer, senior mobile engineer. Ooh. We got a whole bunch more over the bankless job boards. It's feeling a little bullish. On the job boards right now, talent is firing. This is a good time to get a job in crypto. Guys, we got a lot coming up. David, why don't you tell them?
1: Coming up, we got the takes from the week. We got some good ones. Eric Voorhees on fire this week. Uh, We also got some questions for the nation. We got three questions from the nation we're going to run through. And then we're going to go to what David and Ryan are excited about. Hold your breath.
0: You'll never guess. But first, (laughs) want to talk about some (laughs) of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Back with the questions for the week. The first one from Scotty. How bullish is 4844 for EigenLayer. Must be referring to EIP 4844. Mm-hmm. Explain that and tell Scotty why or if it's bullish for EigenLayer.
1: Okay, so EIP 4844 makes this thing called blob space instead of block space. Mm-hmm. You got blob space, which is first-class blob space that is just for layer 2s to put call data on. It's it's layer 2 blocks. It's layer 2 block, block space. We call it blob space cuz we're weird. Um, And when we have 48404 layer twos can use all that block space and they can go super fast And so it's it takes off the brakes for layer twos. So our current layer twos get better We have more room for more layer twos overall 48404 is bullish for the layer two ecosystem It makes Ethereum turn the idea and the whole vertical of layer twos into Something that's just way better eigenlayer. I explained it earlier Uh, it is not these two things are not directly coupled They are inside of the same sector, and so they experience bullishness because both grow, but there's no intimate relationship between 4844 and Eigenlayer. Uh, Eigenlayer can secure more layer twos. It can secure types of layer twos. There's a layer two network out there called Mantle that's using Eigenlayer for data availability, but there's no intimate connection between Eigenlayer and 4844. So it's just like bullish for the sector at large and gives Eigenlayer more opportunity. But so no they're unrelated.
0: They're kind of orthogonal. Then they're, Eigenlayer is restaking. Well,
1: is like actually just like they're only completely unrelated. You're yeah, saying they're no, they're yeah. they're, para, they're in parallel with each other. They're going towards the same goal, but Eigenlayer is not like waiting for bated breath on four 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 or anything like that.
0: Got it. Eigenlayer of course is restaking, which we That's, were talking about earlier in this episode. Yeah. Um, David, here's another qu- uh, question. This one is from Jakara. Here they go. My smart friend. Oh, smart friend! Everyone has a smart friend. Smart. My smart wow. friend <laughs> said that in 24 months, every Visa credit card will have an associated 4337 wallet attached to it. What is 4337, and how would that happen? By the way, I love Bankless, uh, the <laughs> Bankless Nation, giving us precise EIP numbers yeah. in their question. You're, you're okay, these are advanced it. questions. <laughs> Thank you for these questions. <laughs> EIP 4337. First, mm, remind not, actually, everyone not EIP 4337, Ryan it's
1: not what is this erc (laughs) erc You got me You
0: got me it's an uh, ethereum request for comment also a completely unhelpful
1: phrasing of what these things are (laughs) eip ethereum improvement proposal 4844 is dank
0: sharding also a
1: crazy name god no wonder but the difference okay this
0: industry but the difference bef- between an EIP, which is an Ethereum improvement mm-hmm. request, is it's going to take some code deployed mm-hmm. to get it working. And an ERC, it's just, let's all agree on a standard. Yes, It doesn't actually require right. a mm-hmm. part, a, a right. fork, a right. change in the code, not underlying protocol. So right. EIP versus ERC, right. that's the difference here. Yeah. Uh, EIP is, is like, more-
1: hey, let's put this bit of code into Ethereum. ERC yep. is like let's agree that this is the standard that we use at the smart contract layer. So yeah, yeah, like
0: ERC twenties, right? A famous ERC. Yes. Let's all agree Good, that this is the way we do ERC. tokens.
1: Top top three ERC. <laughs> top three ERC, you sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. would also put ERC four three three seven in there, just since we're going down this rabbit hole. We're, at, we're answering questions <laughs> that didn't, that weren't, that wasn't asked. ERC four three three seven could turn into an EIP. I don't think it would be called hmm. EIP, 4337, but like you could take the guts and turn it into an EIP.
0: How a bill becomes a law? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Okay. Anyway, to so return to the question, my f- smart friend said in 24 months, every Visa credit card will have an associated 4337 wallet attached to it. What is 4337? How could that happen? 4337 is account abstraction. It's a smart contract wallet. Uh, the uh, Your smart friend is smart. They are paying attention. Uh, so Visa, with the leadership of Kai Sheffield, has done like primary research and innovation into smart contract wallets using 4337 on mm-hmm. Visa. They are, they are building out a smart contract implementation standard so that they can use it for reoccurring and uh, subscription payments on the Visa network. Um, I don't know about the idea of every Visa credit card having a smart contract wallet associated to it. But two years is a long time. Visa is directly pioneering this effort, and that conclusion would make sense. I don't have any further information beyond that, but we know that Visa is pioneering into the world of smart contract wallets. That's what four three three seven is. So your smart friend is connecting some dots and perhaps knows something.
0: Your smart friend is smart. Don't know about that timeline, but this is a a decent prediction. It's based Mm -hmm. in uh, some realities here. It's technically possible. David, you ready to get some takes of the week? Love it. Uh, We got three. Uh, Number one, why don't you read this?
1: Yeah, because you don't want to read your own tweet. Brian Sean Adams says, you'll never get a country to adopt ETH as money, in quotes. We don't need a country to adopt ETH as money, he says. We need an economy to adopt ETH. The largest economy in the world will be built by AI agents. Oh, it's an AI tweet. It's an AI tweet. Yeah, it's an AI tweet. They'll prefer a digitally native money unencumbered by nation states. ETH is machine money. Tell us about That's this it. One. That's
0: it. I mean, the tweet speaks for itself. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we have created a program money system that AIs are gonna use and AI agents are going to be card become major economic players. Like AI agents are the future um, associations and nonprofits and uh, corporations. They are the A in autonomous. Remember DAOs, digital autonomous mm-hmm. organizations? Well, we needed the A part this is the a part this is the autonomous part the aios basically yeah. d- wow did we just like uh, create something here i like so i i am actually less i think it's less important to get america to put eth in its central bank balance sheet because um the robots are going the ais are going to prefer mm-hmm. a programmable money system that has no string. that has no geographic boundaries has no strings attached You don't have to file in Delaware for this thing. You spin up private keys in a multi-sig and you got a DAO cooking, right? Like robots, aren't going to be able to get bank accounts. They can on Ethereum. All right. Now. Hopefully that this all goes well for us, David. I know we've been talking about AI alignment. That's don't a separate issue. Don't open up the AI rabbit hole. Don't don't do it. <laughs> Not going to do it. ETH is machine money though. And by the way, when I said this, um, people are like, "You are changing the narrative already?" I thought it was ultrasound money, and people are like, "Oh, this is you know, world computer to ETH is machine money narrative switch." I will remind people again, like, what? like no, the internet. All of those go to go there. They all go together, like the internet. There are many use cases of the internet. The internet's just email. The internet is like just e-commerce. I mean, how, like, of course, these are all narratives of the internet. Mm -hmm. It's like Ethereum has many narratives. Of course it would. It has many use cases. That's a strength. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way... ETH being machine money makes it even more freaking ultrasound, okay? Right. ETH that means is
1: <laughs> ultrasound AI money to pay for computation on the Ethereum world computer. Why is
0: that hard? So hard to understand. I don't, I don't know why it's difficult, but <laughs> anyway, uh that that's the take David. Um let's get to another one. This is yours. Can well, I read it? <laughs> yeah, well, this is just Ryan and David read their own tweets. Wow. <laughs> wow, we've gotten uh you know, my are just tweets. reading their so tweets have back to and read forth. All three. Okay, no problem. David Hoffman uh, goes, We should create an Anon account so I can read your tweets without <laughs> really reading your tweets. Open money systems are public goods. The unit of account of money is a public utility. When EIP-1559 burns ETH, it's growing the value of a very widely distributed public good. EIP-1559 is a public goods mechanism. Man, your brain was thinking about money as well this week yeah, and ETH. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you mean by this?
1: Hang on, you got to read the other two tweets. I'm not done yet. Oh,
0: there's more. Yeah. Normalize thinking of money systems as public goods. We easily understand what happens when money systems break down due to currency devaluing. We should understand that increasing the value of money is something universally beneficial to the money system. How much investment and reinvestment has Ethereum received from ETH appreciation? How much has been donated to public goods because ETH went from 80 to 4k? How many startups and jobs have been created due to the Ethereum wealth effect? ETH is the most important public good.
1: So this uh, was inspired by Hayden Adams' recent tweet about how we should redirect EIP 1559 ETH burning away from burning ETH to public goods. And I'm like, Hayden, no, <laughs> don't do that. We've already A, we've already had that discussion. B, stop thinking that it's not already doing that. Burning hmm. ETH is the most credibly neutral thing to do, and it's also contributing to public goods, the money that invests in this entire economy
0: that's my take. I get it. I get it. Good take. Here's a take from Eric Voorhees on a headline that he's reading from a news publication saying, a trillion dollar platinum coin could save the U.S. from economic catastrophe in less than a month. It would be fast, legal, and no bigger than a regular coin. He goes, Eric goes this, thank God it would be no bigger than a regular coin. (laughs) What does that even mean? What is this headline? A trillion-dollar platinum coin. This is a real thing. And it would be fast, legal, and no bigger than a regular coin.
1: Yeah, just the idea of, like, it's really important that people know that it wouldn't be bigger. <laughs> like, and, and we're not going to waste any more metal
0: printing this $1 trillion
1: wow. coin. Wow
0: what would i guess people are thinking it's like you know like a dinner plate size coin because it's worth a trillion dollars do you need multiple people to hold (laughs) the trillion
1: dollar like how heavy
0: is it what's it made out oh it's made out of platinum it is they're really trying to make this out of platinum what's the point of using a precious metal (laughs)
1: because like what is the
0: point (laughs) unforgeable david you can't forge it why not you can print why not print it on paper this is this is a real conversation. So, what is the context of the trillion-dollar platinum coin that's arising again, isn't it?
1: Right. It's because we need a trillion dollars to backstop the banking crisis. The is why this conversation is happening.
0: It's the. Isn't it the um, the debt ceiling? In Congress again. Have you been following this, David? No, it's raising its head again. Again for the, I don't know, 11th billionth it's time. It's like a
1: part of our regular cadence. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we're like, well, rather than have Congress kind of raise the debt ceiling, let's just um, have Treasury mint a trillion dollar platinum coin. That's why this is coming up again. Right.
1: Uh, I will. So, for Bankless listeners, there is a uh, moment of Zen, which is Eric Voorhees being a stand-up comedian unintentionally. That is a very logical continuation of this conversation. So, stay tuned for the very end of the episode for that.
0: You can enjoy that. All right, David, really
1: what are you bullish on this week? I am bullish on Bankless Ventures. Woo! Hey. So Ryan and I and Ben Lakoff are raising a fund, Bankless Ventures, $30 million early stage fund. The, the, the line that I like to give is Bankless Media, the podcast you're listening to right now, teaches you how to explore the frontier. And then Bankless Ventures gives you the money you need to establish a settlement out there on the frontier. Uh, and so uh, we talked about this a while ago when CoinDesk broke the news. Before we were really able to like talk about it now, uh, but I wrote an article on Bankless, Bankless.com. You can find it. It's called "Why We Are Launching Bankless Ventures." puts some of the backstory and the ideas and the thesis behind Bankless Ventures. Um, people are asking me like, "Okay, like, what what what's the what's the thesis behind Bankless Ventures? Like, what, what's the deal?" And the thesis is that Ryan and I have really good deal flow and we're putting it all into Bankless VC. Um, There's certain sectors that we of course are looking at. um, Who's gonna buy all the layer two block space? Like we need startups to buy the layer two block space. Uh, Account abstraction, uh, the inevitable AI meets crypto intersection. Like all of these things are things that we're looking at, but really the idea is because of the position of Bankless Media, we're at the center of crypto, put all the deal flow in front that we get from the, the media network that we've created into Bankless VC. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about Bankless Ventures and also the inevitable conflicts of interest section, which I'm sure some people are curious about, uh, that is available as a link in the show notes.
0: Yeah. And we've got some cool advisors, Justin Drake, uh, coming aboard for this, mm-hmm. Anthony Sassano. And I heard you uh, pitching startups to come contact us as mm-hmm. well. If you're building yeah. something really cool yeah. in crypto, get in touch. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: we are mostly full lots of fun. But if you are interested in being an LP, that window is still open. True. Credit investor, all that mm-hmm. jazz. Yeah. Uh, Gary made us do that part, the accredited investor mm-hmm.
0: part. I know, sad. It's sad, it is sad.
1: Uh, Ryan, what are you bullish on?
0: I am bullish on another accumulation opportunity for uh, Ether, that mm-hmm. asset we've been talking a lot about mm-hmm. in the show. Um, it's low. I think ETH, the, the price of ETH is low relative to its value. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's kind of like fair truth. market value. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just looking at, you know that website that lists all the, um, the assets, like worldwide mm-hmm. assets? Do you know uh, Home Depot. The company yes. is worth more than all the ETH in existence. That's right not now. right. David, is Home Depot stock ultrasound? Is it burning? Okay. Like, is it like the cornerstone of the internet financial system? Can Home Depot stock be restaked to secure other decentralized? I'm just like, it's silly when you zoom out and you look at this context. And um, yeah, ETH is in one of those places again. It's pretty close. I'm not going to say it's exactly how I felt about this asset in like um, 20, I would say 2019, end of 2019 and early 2020, where it was just like, oh, we're definitely coming back. We're like, look at all this stuff that's being built. And Mm -hmm. we went on kind of basically like a a rampage of like ETH is undervalued. ETH is like, it's undervalued. Hello, it's undervalued. I'm not quite there. But I'm getting closer. I mean, Home Depot, David. All right.
1: <laughs> the when Ryan in eight to twenty years when Home Depot stock becomes a security token on Ethereum and also collateralized <laughs> on the wagon layer, I'm gonna come back and be like, actually, you can restake Home Depot.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know what? Though, what's cool is um, these there's accumulation opportunities where pe- mm-hmm. other people get a chance to get on board into crypto. And I'm so glad we had, we have these. It's like, it's, you have the opportunity to be a settler, not a tourist. When other people aren't looking, you're doing your research, you're seeing what's going on here. You're bullish on it. You could take a very risky bet. Mm -hmm. Um, I think ETH is kind of like that right now. And uh, it's a good time to buy, in my opinion. Not financial advice. David, we got a meme of the week. What are we looking at?
1: Uh, Meme of the week. Here we go. So this, I think, was a great uh, illustration of the AI alignment problem. And so that particular one, yeah, you sent this to me, Ryan. So uh, this is the AI alignment problem. Uh, So that little, there's this, okay, for the podcast listeners, there is this, I don't even know what you call it, a fucking monster. A Lovecraftian monster. Like, it's spaghetti, like, monster with teeth. And then all of these tentacles are converging to, like, put up this puppet face so that it's making this face because that's what you want to interact with. That's like ChatGPT. So like the interface that you need to like talk to this monster of like tentacles and eyeballs and sensors and all that stuff. And then you make the face and then the face outputs this like little nugget, which is like your input into ChatGPT. It's like, hey, uh, what is like you know, the information that I want? And then it spits out exactly what you want. Behind the scenes, there's this like Cthulhu <laughs> that is making that happen. And it's unsupervised learning, Unsuper- like in the back, in the black box. You don't know what the hell's going on. And then you have this face that it's making because we trained it to make that face. But the face is just like a puppet of Cthulhu. And then it spits out this little nugget, which is exactly a little bit of gold. It's like, here, little happy smiley, oh, happy smiley yeah. face? A little happy smiley face. Here
0: you yeah. go. Uh-huh. It's uh, RLHF. So reinforcement learning with human feedback. That's yeah. how it kind of learns. That's a smiley right. face. Right. Yeah. Uh, David, I thought memes were supposed to be funny. This is making me sad. Well, this wasn't a meme.
1: This was a rug pull. This was a education about the alignment. Okay. Problem. Yeah, this is us <laughs> I mean, turning back into an alignment podcast.
0: I hope this is not true, is the bottom line, right? I hope this is just an artist rendition, and we need to work to make it not true. Yeah. But the truth is, the truth is, from everything that we've done so far in this uh, AI alignment series is, we have no idea the nature yeah. Yeah, we of don't this know what's back there. thing that we've built. We don't know if it's a Lovecraftian monster yeah. or if it's just a friendly unicorn or if it's a zombie that we can kind of like train it to do mm-hmm. what we want or whether it's some kind of like an early stage consciousness. Like we have no idea. Right. And that is the scary part of All of the here. above. Yeah. So yeah. right here at um, uh,
1: Montenegro, I've done two AI conversations right now, uh, which I'm going to uh, throw over to the podcast editors and underhand to you. Um The line that has stuck with me, which I did a a full length podcast with this guy, um, where uh, the reason why AI alignment problem is an issue is because it is simply a reflection of human alignment. As in, when we look into that black box of AI, we don't understand what's going on. And then people see doom and people see misalignment. It's because it's actually not a black box. It's a mirror. And we are looking back at ourselves and be like, man, that's a human problem, which the monster is us, the monster is us. Which ooh, does not make me feel any better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> On that note, we should get to the moment of zen. Uh, David, tee it up for us. We should laugh much more. <laughs> yeah, tee this up. for This is Eric Voorhees mm-hmm. giving a speech as part of a debate, a classic mm-hmm. speech uh, from 2018. I think you're going to enjoy this. Got to let you know before we fade into that. Risks and disclaimers, of course, none of this has been financial advice. Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.
2: Next, let's discuss why fiat is bad money. (laughs) Why should we care about cryptocurrencies and their attributes when we already have fiat? Fiat works pretty well, right? It's got pyramids and government buildings printed on it, so you know it's valuable. (laughs) Also, it is backed by paper. Paper can be burned if you're cold in the winter There's its intrinsic value, try that with gold. (laughs) But a skeptical observer should know that fiat money is an absolute scam and something altogether inappropriate for an ethical market-based society. As I like to say, you cannot have a free market when the most important good, money itself, is centrally planned and controlled. Fiat money and a market economy are mutually exclusive concepts. Like oil and water, they can certainly be mixed up together when force is applied but they will naturally separate and dispel one another over time. Indeed, the average lifespan of fiat is less than 50 years. The U.S. dollar only became fiat in 1971. That's less than the length of William Shatner's career. (laughs) And as it happens, last week he announced that he has started to mine bitcoins as well. (laughs) Regardless, when examining its specific properties as money, most ways fiat is unimpressive. First, it is not scarce. It is systematically created out of thin air with no limit on supply, nor can supply even be known. Fiat is willed into existence by politicians and banks because printing money enriches the printer at the expense of the public who holds the previously printed money. The phenomenon is known as inflation inflation or currency debasement. Fiat also struggles with durability. Your fiat will only last so long as your bank permits, and even then it slowly loses its value. Your bank can destroy your fiat with the click of a button, ask a Cypriot, Ask an Argentinian how durable fiat is. With fiat, you are ever dependent on a third party with your wealth. Is that an attribute of money that you find attractive? Some people are comfortable with it because they trust their government. But requiring trust in politicians seems a poor foundation upon which to build a prosperous society. Finally, fiat is not nearly as portable as Bitcoin. Try to send an international wire right now. You can't because it's after 5 o'clock. How quaint is that? You can try tomorrow morning, as long as it's not Sunday, because apparently God doesn't want you to use the financial system on the Sabbath. (laughs) But even when successful, you'll discover it takes three to five days for your wire to arrive. You often have to physically go to the bank to do this. You have to fill out a form on paper while someone making $15 an hour takes that info and types it back into a computer. Why do people put up with this nonsense? Indeed, it is faster to strap cash to an anvil and FedEx it to Tokyo than it is to send an international wire. Do you really think that that system is going to outcompete Bitcoin in an open marketplace? And you can only send fiat if you have permission. Try to send it to a family member in Russia. You'll be censored. Want to donate to a relief effort, perhaps, in Venezuela? Too bad. You'll be censored. Are you sending a suspicious amount? Your payment will be blocked and you better get ready for questioning or outright confiscation. Yep, the Orwellian nanny state is alive and well and fiat currency is one of its most insidious tentacles. Fiat has these poor monetary attributes because it is a tool and appendage of the state. It exists to serve the state, not to exist market participants. Its attributes as money are intentionally constrained and inferior so as to siphon wealth to the state through debasement and to surveil and control the behavior of the king's subjects. Remember that fiat means value by decree, not by merit.